Welcome back to the Mastering Your Fertility podcast. This show is all about empowering couples with the knowledge they need to get pregnant, stay pregnant, and have the healthiest baby possible. I'm Kristen Cornett, a functional nutritional therapy practitioner and owner of an online fertility practice called Tiny Feet. I work with women and couples all over the world to optimize their health and fertility so they can build the families they've always dreamed of. You can learn more about me on my website at tinyfeet.co. Thanks so much for tuning in with me today. Before we get started, I just wanna share a couple of awesome free resources that can help you move forward on your journey. First is the free, Are You Healthy Enough to Get Pregnant quiz that will ask you about symptoms in five areas of health that are foundational to fertility and provide you with some practical tips on how to get started addressing each area. Next is the free mini course on how to choose the best prenatal supplements, which walks you through the specific nutrients you need to support your fertility and a healthy pregnancy, and how to find high quality supplements to meet your needs. And lastly, if you're wanting more individualized advice for where to go next on your journey, or you're thinking that you'd like to work with someone one-on-one, you can go ahead and schedule a free 20-minute phone consult with me. You can find links to all three of these resources through the link in this week's episode description. You're listening to episode 77, and today is the May question and answer session. So I'm going to be covering 10 listener questions on air today that I've received this past month. Today's topics include organic versus conventional produce, chronic Lyme disease, recovering from hypothalamic amenorrhea, symptoms around ovulation such as cramping and bleeding, what it means to have a low basal body temperature, how long your luteal phase should be and what to do if it's too short possible causes of cold hands and feet, and possible reasons for high cholesterol levels. These Q&A sessions have been super fun for me to do, and hopefully they've also been helpful for you as well. I do plan to continue doing one per month going forward, so if you have a topic that you've been wanting to learn more about, send me an email at info at tinyfeet.co or shoot me a DM on Instagram at tinyfeet.co and share your question with me. I will get back to you within several days with an answer, and I'll add your question to the list of potential topics for future Q&A episodes. All right, so let's go ahead and jump into today's list. The first question that I'm going to answer is about organic versus conventional produce. So the question reads, is it still beneficial to buy and consume non-organic fresh foods, or does the pesticides and other chemicals that may be used when growing them counteract the benefits completely? Okay, so first of all, pesticides are definitely important to avoid when you can, but not at the expense of avoiding produce altogether. So if there's no organic options available to you, you don't just want to not eat fruits and vegetables. But if there is some organic produce available, it is a good idea to try to incorporate that as you can. Of course, organic is more expensive in most places. Um, So my suggestion when organic either isn't widely available or isn't accessible, from a cost perspective is to use the Environmental Working Group Guides to Pesticides in Produce. So EWG has a dirty dozen list that shows all the types of conventional produce that are most likely to have the highest level of pesticide residues. And these are the ones that I would recommend either buying organic if you can or just avoiding them altogether. 
There's also a clean 15 list, and this list shows the produce items that are least likely to have high levels of pesticide residue. And so clean 15 items can be um, purchased conventional without as much concern. So I'm gonna go ahead and link to the EWG list in the show notes for this episode, but hopefully that helps you guys make some decisions about where to prioritize dollars when it comes to your food budget. And I know that obviously with COVID going on right now, there is some changes in accessibility and what you guys are able to get depending on where you are. It might be harder to get to the grocery store at this particular point in time. So just do the best that you can, but don't avoid fruits and vegetables because of concerns over pesticides. Just use those lists and, and do your best. Okay, so question number two is a little bit of what I'll call a zebra. <laughs> I don't know how many of you are dealing with this out there, but I, it is something that I think is becoming more prevalent, and I did want to cover this question on the podcast. This isn't going to be a super in-depth discussion because I am not an expert on this topic, but I at least wanted to provide a resource for those of you that might be struggling in this area. So the question is about Lyme disease. Um, have I found any therapies that have worked well for someone dealing with chronic Lyme. Uh, so this is a very complex illness. It's a very complex topic. There are a lot of different potential angles to consider and different body systems that can be disrupted with chronic Lyme. So like I said, I'm not an expert in this area. I haven't seen a ton of this in my practice, but I do know that it is an issue and that fertility can become a concern for, um, for clients or patients with chronic Lyme disease. So I definitely highly recommend working with what we call Lyme literate practitioners. You can either work with a medical doctor or a naturopathic doctor who is experienced in treating this condition holistically. And some of the things that should be included in an effective protocol for Lyme are typically things like antimicrobials. This may be prescription or herbal, depending on the practitioner that you're working with. You'll likely end up needing some type of immune support. There's often a need for neurological support with chronic Lyme, um, HPA axis or hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis support, a liver and detoxification support, and the list goes on. There are lots of considerations here. And then of course, if fertility is the goal, then there are some additional things that would need to be looked at with that, such as hormone balance. And that would come secondary to a lot of the other things that I just mentioned for general health. So individual needs are gonna vary a lot from person to person with Lyme. Um, and so I'm gonna include an article from one of the top companies that offers Lyme testing on different options for finding a practitioner to work with. So I'll link to that in the show notes. So if any of you are dealing with chronic Lyme, you can use that as a resource to start to look for somebody to work with. Hopefully that answers that question for everybody. Okay, so question three, can you share information on trying to conceive slash balancing hormones to conceive after or while recovering from hypothalamic amenorrhea and disordered eating? Okay, so this is, of course, another kind of complex topic. Um, if you've lost your period to hypothalamic amenorrhea, there are typically some top things to consider for why you may have lost your period in the first place or why you may have received a diagnosis of HA. Um, so I do want to mention that I just recently did an interview on this just two weeks ago, I think. Yeah, episode 75. 
uh, with Samantha Kelgren, and we talked a lot about some of the considerations of getting your period back after an HA diagnosis. Some of the first things to think about, obviously the person who asked this question specifically mentioned disordered eating. So if an eating disorder such as anorexia or bulimia or another type of disorder has led to this diagnosis, then obviously one of the first steps is gonna to be to receive appropriate treatment for that disordered eating pattern, making sure that you're beginning to eat enough, nourish your body, focus on nutrient density, and also if exercise is playing a role that is likely gonna need to be reduced as well. Many women lose their period when they're excessively restricting calories and also over-exercising at the same time. So if you listen to that podcast episode 75 with Samantha, she talks about how she was overtraining and just being really restrictive in her eating habits and that ultimately led to struggling to get her cycle back when she wanted to conceive and then ending up going through IVF and she now coaches people that are going through similar issues. So eating more, receiving treatment for disordered eating, addressing excessive exercise, and there's great tips in that episode with Samantha on how to do that. There also, if you've started to do those things and maybe you've seen a little bit of progress but you're still struggling or you feel like you've addressed eating and exercise mostly and you're still not seeing any improvement in your cycle, then I would recommend seeing your practitioner to have some labs done. And these can really help assess overall health, determine whether or not there are some other specific areas that could be disrupting your cycle, things that might be out of whack that have resulted from just long-term nutrient or calorie restriction. So some of the labs to consider would be a full thyroid panel, looking at thyroid function, and that's gonna include your TSH as well as your free and total T4 and T3 and thyroid antibodies. You should also seek out a complete blood count with differential, and that will give a better assessment of whether or not you might be dealing with some type of anemia, either iron-related or B12 folate-related anemia. A metabolic panel and a lipid panel can also help assess things. Um, hemoglobin A1C and insulin, these are some of the basic general health labs that can really give a window into cycle balance and hormones. Also assessing for iron deficiency anemia, so in addition to the CBC, having a serum iron, total iron binding capacity, transferrin saturation, and a ferritin level also measured. Homocysteine can also give a window into B vitamin status, so that tests how well your methylation cycle is working and if you have sufficient B12 and folate to keep that running, and that does affect your menstrual cycle. And then also looking at vitamin D and maybe a C-reactive protein to check out inflammation. Another thing I want to mention with hypothalamic amenorrhea, in addition to disordered eating or um, excessive exercise, is also just physical or emotional trauma in the past. That's another thing that can contribute. So making sure that that is being addressed holistically by a practitioner that is appropriately trained to handle some of those issues and help you work through some of those things. And then also for hormones, I would recommend if you've addressed some of these things, you've had the general health labs and you're still not seeing the progress that you'd like, it's a great idea to have some functional hormone testing done with something like a Dutch complete test. And that will just give you a fuller picture of what's happening with hormones. And so the pituitary, uh, the HPA, HPO axis can get very dysregulated when hypothalamic amenorrhea has been a problem in the past. And sometimes it can take some extra support and some balancing to figure out what's going on. It's also worth having um, some other labs tested via serum or blood, such as prolactin. That's something that can cause irregular or absent cycles as well if it's elevated. 
So hopefully that helps answer that for you guys. And like I said, if you're dealing with this particular issue, episode 75 is a great resource. And I just happen to have done that one recently. Okay, moving on to question four. This is another interesting one. So what would cause intense and painful cramps in the abdomen when exercising around ovulation, but not during any other time of the cycle? So I was really fascinated when I got this question via email and really had to dig in and think about it. And this is something that would probably require some um, individualized assessment to figure out which, if any, of the things that I'm going to talk about right now actually apply to you. So I'm just going to share some of the things that could be at play here. So it's important to remember that mid-cycle is when your estrogen levels are going to be, hopefully, surging in preparation for ovulation, and then they're going to drop after ovulation. And so that estrogen surge can be responsible for some of the uncomfortable symptoms in women who might already be struggling with excess estrogen levels. So if you're experiencing some discomfort around ovulation, that could be a sign of excess estrogen. And some functional hormone testing, such as a Dutch complete test, would probably be in order at that point, especially if you're very uncomfortable and you also have other symptoms of estrogen dominance. So other symptoms of estrogen dominance would include things like swollen and tender breasts in the luteal phase, PMS or mood issues in the luteal phase or right before your period, painful periods, heavy periods, those type of symptoms are all um, signs of excess estrogen or a lack of progesterone to offset estrogen. Another thing to consider is that that mid-cycle increase in estrogen is going to increase histamine in the body. Histamine is an inflammatory molecule, and that could be causing some of the poor exercise tolerance or cramping, especially if you're noticing that in response to exercise. And if you know that you might already be susceptible to increased histamine levels or sluggish histamine clearance, so like if you've had a genetic profile done and you know that you have some genetic SNPs in those enzymes that clear histamine from the body, that might be uh, something to be on your radar for this type of a symptom. I also want to mention an episode that Dr. Haley and I did a while back with Dr. Lara Bryden. And that episode was all about how histamine influences estrogen, so the relationship between histamine and estrogen. That was back in episode 47, and I'll link to that in the show notes. But that was a very fascinating episode that kind of talks about this interesting relationship and why women see an increase in symptoms during certain times of their cycle when estrogen tends to be a little bit higher. So good resource there. Um, I also want to mention that estrogen does influence gut bacteria and can cause some significant intestinal symptoms, especially if you're in a situation where you're having trouble clearing histamine or you have some dysbiosis in your gut, some of the wrong types of bacteria that can deconjugate estrogen and cause you to reabsorb it. Uh, so even if you don't feel like you're experiencing any other GI symptoms during this time, you might be more likely to notice a change, especially during exertion with elevated estrogen and some issues in the gut. And it can be difficult to tell sometimes whether or not that cramping in the lower abdomen is related to issues with the GI tract or with the reproductive tract, just because things are so close in there together. Um, so that's something to consider as well, whether or not it's actually coming from the pelvis or if it's coming more from the GI tract. 
Um, another possibility would be something like endometriosis that's either affecting just the pelvic organs or even the bowel. So lesions of endometrial tissue are going to be estrogen sensitive. They'll swell um, in response to elevating estrogen levels, which are going to happen mid-cycle. Many women also have that issue during the luteal phase where they're estrogen dominant and don't have enough progesterone to offset that estrogen level. Um, and so if there's some increased inflammation happening from those lesions swelling in response to estrogen, that could also potentially be painful, particularly with exertion. So finding out which, if any of these things apply to you, if you happen to have this issue, either pain or cramping in the abdomen, or in this person's case specifically with exercise, then uh, some individualized um, investigation is definitely in order here. And you could do that with something like a Dutch test, certainly, or even just looking at symptoms. Maybe you could try limiting higher histamine foods during these times, just to see more as like a diagnostic tool for yourself to determine whether or not histamine might be a contributing factor. And if it is, then I recommend working with a practitioner that can kind of help you manage that because a long-term low histamine diet or limiting those foods during high estrogen times, it's probably going to get a little bit frustrating and could also potentially limit some nutrients. So not a great long-term strategy. Okay, moving on to our next question, which now I'm losing count as I'm, as I'm going through here. I think this is question five. So the question is, I recently finished the fifth vital sign and the author detailed how cycle tracking can show a thyroid issue when the pre-ovulatory or follicular phase temperatures are consistently low. So my question is, how does a thyroid issue affect the post-ovulatory basal body temperature? And would we expect to see a temperature rise, but not see it rise to its full peak of a normal 98.6? Okay, so a couple of things going on here. First, I just wanna mention for those of you who don't know, if you are temping every day, um, doing your basal body temperature to track your cycle, it can be a sign of a thyroid issue if your basal body temperature in the follicular phase, so the first half of your cycle before ovulation, is consistently below 97.5 degrees. So if you're noticing that, that's a good indication that you might need to have your thyroid panel tested. And just as a reminder, we talked about this in a previous question, but a full thyroid panel is definitely in order. At the very least, one that looks at TSH and both free T4 and free T3. A lot of times TSH and free T4 will be in range, but you're not converting well to free T3. And many practitioners don't test that, um, partly because they don't medicate with T3. It's typically T4 that's recommended for medication. So it's not as common to test the T3. But if you are having this issue with low basal body temperature, make sure you get at least those three markers and ideally antibodies as well. So with that said, low thyroid can also result in lower luteal phase temperatures. Your thyroid is responsible for your metabolic rate, and that also influences your heat production in the body. And so it's, it's more likely that you'll notice those lower basal body temperatures consistently in the follicular phase. But if you're having that issue, you may notice that even though your temps rise in the luteal phase, they just don't go as high. So you might see your temperatures peak like in the high 97s or very low 98s. Uh, and that can, that can also be a sign of a thyroid issue. But I would be primarily looking at follicular temps to determine that in somebody's chart. I do want to mention, though, that there's also a relationship between thyroid health and progesterone. 
progesterone is really what causes the spike in temperatures in the second half of the cycle. Um, and that increases metabolic rate. And so there is that relationship between progesterone and thyroid hormone. And so if low thyroid is affecting progesterone levels as well, then you might be even more likely to see lower temps than you expect in the luteal phase, or maybe some erratic temperatures in the luteal phase. Okay, next question, which I believe is question six. Uh, and this is about cholesterol levels. So what could cause high cholesterol levels? And this is kind of a general health question, but I do recommend a lipid panel as part of a preconception health assessment. And I do like to have that testing done on any of the fertility clients that come to see me in my practice as an assessment of general health as well as liver function. But one of the primary things that we would look at with high cholesterol is making sure that we're doing an assessment for hypothyroidism. So adequate thyroid hormone is required to break down and remove particularly LDL cholesterol from circulation. You may also see elevated HDL with hypothyroidism, but a lot of women will see that higher LDL um, even when their diet and other markers of metabolic health are in range. And so if this is you and you're struggling with your cholesterol and you haven't had your thyroid panel done, I would highly recommend doing that. And there, um, like I mentioned earlier, at least the TSH, free T4, free T3, ideally antibodies and total T4 and T3 if your practitioner is willing to order that for you. Some other things that can cause high cholesterol levels in a young reproductive aged woman are, uh, is a diet high in refined carbohydrates. And so refined carbs in the diet, like excessive sugars or a lot of grains and starches, this can elevate both your LDL cholesterol as well as your triglycerides. So look at both of those on a lipid panel and assess your diet and determine whether or not that might be a factor for you. And if you want to also assess other metabolic markers, I think it's important to have the cholesterol and lipid panel information in conjunction with fasting glucose, um, insulin levels, as well as a hemoglobin A1C. And those three markers help to assess blood sugar balance in addition to seeing how that may be affecting the lipid panel. Other things that could cause high cholesterol, there are several more, but I'm just gonna mention a couple more. So increased inflammation and oxidative stress in the body. Cholesterol is a protective mechanism that we have in our bodies to protect us against things like inflammation. So when we think about the concepts of cardiovascular disease, it's really more of an inflammatory condition than it is a cholesterol issue. Cholesterol kind of gets blamed because it's found at the scene of the crime, but when inflammation goes up in the body, that can damage our our vascular system. And cholesterol goes in to kind of patch some of that inflammation and actually protect us. And so if we're seeing an increased need for cholesterol in the body, that can be a sign of inflammation or oxidative stress. And then also with elevated lipids, and I would look at other metabolic markers in conjunction to kind of make this determination. But if you're dealing with something like fatty liver disease, which is largely related to diet, but can also be related to choline deficiency, or just poor liver function, some congestion going on there, or even poor gallbladder function and fat digestion can all contribute to high cholesterol levels. Moving on to question seven. Uh, this is another one that's going to be related to thyroid as well as some other things, but why would my hands and feet be cold all the time? This is definitely one that I've personally struggled with in the past, and I would say the majority of clients that come to me in the tiny feet practice 
are dealing with cold hands and feet. So the primary indicator, the first thing that I would rec recommend looking at is having your thyroid checked, definitely. As we talked about earlier, your thyroid is responsible for metabolic rate and heat production. And so you may notice that your hands and feet are cold all the time if you have a thyroid issue. So once again, if I haven't said it enough times in this episode, having TSH, free T4, and free T3 at the very least all measured can help investigate this issue a little bit more. Some other things that can contribute to cold hands and feet, if you've had thyroid assessed, everything is within functional range. Another thing to look at would be anemia. So anemia can be, there's like 400 different types of anemia, but some of the most common would be iron deficiency anemia and B vitamin deficiency anemia. And the B vitamins could include B12, folate, or B6. And so when you're anemic and you don't have enough hemoglobin to deliver oxygen throughout your bloodstream, it can affect circulation levels and ultimately lead to less circulation, less blood flow to the hands and feet. Um, circulatory disorders could also be responsible for this. That's obviously something that's a little bit outside the scope of this podcast. And so investigating that, if you know that you have a family history of circulatory disorders, talk to your doctor about any necessary testing or treatment that might be important for that. Another thing I want to mention, and this is something that I actually do struggle with personally, is Raynaud's syndrome. Now, Raynaud's is actually an autoimmune condition. And it can either be primary, a primary disorder, which is less common, or it can be secondary to another autoimmune condition, which is much more common. So if you have a primary autoimmune diagnosis, which you may or may not be aware of at this point, then Raynaud's is, is a common secondary condition that can pop up with autoimmunity. And so other than just coldness in the hands and feet, you might also notice some other issues like color changes in your hands and feet. And so like uh, for me personally, when my hands get really cold, like I'm just hypersensitive, my blood vessels are hypersensitive to that cold stimulus. And I'll notice that I'll get like one or two fingers that go completely white and kind of numb. And then when they start to warm up, like if I run them under some warm water, they'll kind of turn blue or maybe a little bit purple and there'll be some discomfort upon warming, like some numbness or tingling or maybe like a little bit of stabbing. And so if you notice that type of a thing, you may be dealing with Raynaud's and that could be contributing to cold, cold hands and feet. And the last thing I want to mention about this particular topic is estrogen dominance. So estrogen has an impact on how blood vessels respond to temperature stimulus. And so if you're dealing with elevated estrogen levels or not enough progesterone to counteract or balance out that estrogen, cold hands and feet could be a symptom that you notice as a result of that. And so I would definitely rule out hypothyroid and anemia before you look into the estrogen or in conjunction, you could look at all of those things together if you're working with someone that is willing and able to do that for you. All right, moving on to question eight. Can your temperature rise in an ovulatory cycle-like manner, even if you know for sure that your body didn't release an egg? would progesterone still be produced without the corpus luteum? Okay, so I feel like the only way that you would know for sure that you didn't release an egg is if you were being monitored through ultrasound um, for ovulation. So you can probably tell some from your chart, like if you're charting, you may be able to tell that you're having anovulatory cycles, um, but the only way to really know absolutely for sure that you didn't release an egg 
um, would be through ultrasound, especially if you're seeing your temperature rise on your chart. That's typically what we would use to signal ovulation. Also, if you're using OPKs, those can predict ovulation uh, in conjunction with temperatures all by themselves. They don't necessarily guarantee that you've released an egg. Um, so charting is definitely a good way to confirm with most certainty that you've ovulated. But if you've had an ultrasound and you know that you haven't, could it be possible for your temps to still rise in the luteal phase or quote luteal phase? So the thing is that you can't really produce significant amounts of progesterone if you don't ovulate. And so if there's no progesterone, your temperatures really shouldn't be spiking in that really clear biphasic rhythm. So consistently above what we see in the first half of the cycle or the follicular phase. So it might be possible for you to have a temperature spike for a day or even a few days that's related to some other circumstance. So some things that can cause abnormally elevated basal body temperature or things like illness, if you've been traveling, some disruption to your circadian rhythm, uh, if you've consumed alcohol the prior day, if you have consumed foods that you know that you're sensitive to, that can cause some inflammation and a spike in temperature. Or if you have any other confounding health issues, such as like a thyroid disorder or another inflammatory condition that you might be dealing with. But all that said, those should be temporary temp spikes. You shouldn't be seeing a consistently elevated luteal phase temp if you somehow know for sure that you didn't ovulate. And the other question was, can progesterone be produced by something else in the body aside from a corpus luteum? The answer is yes, that it, it can. Um, your adrenal glands do produce a small amount of progesterone fairly consistently throughout the cycle. So like if you have your blood draw done, you'll typically see like a super low level in the follicular phase. And that's really just the progesterone that's coming from adrenal production. But that's not enough to cause a clear biphasic temp uh, shift in the luteal phase. So if you had a condition, a more rare condition like congenital adrenal hyperplasia, you may see consistently elevated progesterone throughout your cycle, and that could affect your overall temps, but that would be happening the whole cycle, not just in the luteal phase. So hopefully that wasn't too convoluted of an explanation for that. Um, moving on to question nine. I experienced some light red bleeding during ovulation. What could cause this and is it a sign of an unhealthy cycle? So earlier, several questions back, we talked about uh, like cramping and pain during ovulation and now we're talking about bleeding. So I do wanna say that about three to 5% of women do experience some spotting with ovulation. I don't consider it to automatically be a sign that something is wrong with your cycle. So there are some theories about what causes the bleeding. One theory is that a really strong ovulatory event actually results in some bleeding as the egg breaks through the follicle wall. Uh, another theory is that the bleeding is just related to hormonal fluctuations. So estrogen is going to drop off pretty sharply after ovulation. And if this happens before that progesterone has kind of spiked all the way and had a chance to rise sufficiently to sustain that uterine lining that you built up in the follicular phase, then that could cause a tiny bit of shedding of the lining before that progesterone surge. So you might see just like a little bit of either pink or maybe even brown spotting around ovulation. 
And another possibility is that spotting around ovulation could be a sign of something inflammatory going on. So more in line with some of the things that we talked about earlier when I was answering the question about cramping and kind of exercise intolerance around ovulation. And so to determine whether or not that requires additional investigation, I would probably need more information. Are there a lot of signs of estrogen dominance? Are there a lot of inflammatory issues? Are there also gut issues or food sensitivities or something like that also going on? And that would kind of help me decide as a practitioner whether or not I would choose to investigate that further. All right, so moving on to question 10 and the last one of this Q&A episode. So the question is, how long should my luteal phase be? And what does it mean if mine is short? Now we may have covered this in a prior Q&A episode sort of indirectly, but I thought this was a good one to include here because I've been getting a lot of questions about this lately, both from clients as well as from listeners. So the luteal phase ideally should be 14 days. Like in a perfect world, that's kind of 13 to 14 days is, is ideal. Uh, 12 is also perfectly acceptable. There are lots of women who get pregnant um, and have healthy pregnancies with a 12 to somewhere in the 12 to 14 day range for luteal phase. If you're getting a little bit less than that, then I would probably investigate a little bit more and certainly no less than 10. 10 is kind of the minimum for sustaining a pregnancy. And so if it's less than 12 and more than 10, I would definitely look at that, maybe dig in a little bit deeper, look for ways that we could optimize progesterone production in the luteal phase or look into some other possible causes that it might be on the short side. But less than 10 is actually considered a luteal phase defect. And that would be something that needed to be looked at deeper for sure. So a short luteal phase can be a sign of low progesterone. And low progesterone is required to sustain the uterine lining that has been built up in the follicular phase by estrogen. And it also kind of primes and nourishes that lining to prepare for implantation. So if your luteal phase is shorter than 10 to 12 days, you may be not producing enough progesterone in the ovaries to sustain that lining. And so it starts to degenerate and you'll start bleeding, you'll start your period earlier than you would otherwise if your progesterone levels were healthier. There are also some other conditions aside from just low progesterone that can cause issues with the luteal phase. Now, some of these like endometriosis and PCOS, both of these conditions, low progesterone or progesterone resistance can be an issue with these. And so you'd still wanna consider if you have endometriosis or PCOS, to look into progesterone. With PCOS, you're not ovulating as frequently, and so it, it would be normal for you not to have progesterone in, uh, in your cycle if you're not ovulating, because you only produce significant amounts of progesterone after ovulation. And then with endometriosis, many women either just have too much estrogen in relationship to progesterone, or they have both. They have excess estrogen and low progesterone levels, and that can affect the, the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle. Another thing to look into that can have an effect on how long that luteal phase is, is stress. And I also look at this um, in the follicular phase as well, because stress can kind of delay ovulation and lengthen that follicular phase and also shorten the, the luteal phase at the same time. So a lot of times with women who are dealing with acute or chronic stress, I will see like ovulation happening day 17 to like 23 or 24, and I'll see luteal phase be closer to like 10 or 11 days, and in some cases a little bit shorter. 
Some other things that can affect ovarian function and the production of progesterone in the luteal phase, or even just the brain's communication in general with the ovaries, so the pituitary, the hypothalamus and the pituitary, that communication with the ovaries can be disrupted by some of the things we talked about earlier when we talked about hypothalamic amenorrhea. So things like over-exercising, not eating enough calories, missing out on some essential nutrients or dealing with something like anemia, Thyroid issues can also cause changes in the cycle. I do see a lot of women with longer follicular phases and shorter luteal phases that also have thyroid issues. And some other things that can kind of impair ovarian function, especially in the luteal phase with progesterone, are inflammation and oxidative stress. So not enough antioxidants to counteract the pro-oxidation that's happening in the body. So I hope that that was a good explanation for that question. And that brings us to the end of the May Q&A. And I hope you guys got a lot out of this episode. These were some really interesting questions. And I do, I do love the zebra questions. So I might not cover all of them on the podcast, but you have some, if you have something that seems like it's a little bit more applicable to you or a little bit off the wall, I'm still happy to answer that for you, whether it gets included in an episode or not. Um, but I do like including some of those because it's, I think it's interesting to see what women are dealing with what things and who resonates with some of these more interesting questions. So if you do have something that you want to know, I just want to remind you that you can send me an email at info at tinyfeet.co to ask your question. You can also send me a DM on Instagram. I will answer your questions, whether they get included in an upcoming Q&A or not, but I will add them to the pool of questions to choose from for that upcoming episode. And I will be coming at you with the June Q&A, either the first or second week, full week of June. So I look forward to seeing you guys back next week and I look forward to your questions.